0: It has already been such an occasion of blessedness to come together, hasn't it? To give thought to songs like Blessed Assurance that we sang just at the beginning of our service this morning. And songs such as Give Me the Bible. And songs also that remind us of the footsteps of Jesus. All those things, of course, are tremendous lessons in and of themselves. And now for the next few moments, to reflect upon the organization of the church. Now, you may have noted in the reading taken from Philippians 1, verse 1, we have some interesting information provided, so I'll invite you to turn back to that passage, and we'll use that as a springboard for much of our discussion, in fact, this morning. This introductory slide is one that is a very gentle reminder of the significance of some of the matters that you and I shall consider this morning. Isn't it true that the church is the grandest institution of all time? Because, you see, you can't go to heaven without it. In our day today, we appreciate it is the body of Christ. And since the Lord is the Savior of the body, Ephesians 5.23, you can't be saved without the church. So every accountable being, you see, will have to be a member of that wonderful and blessed body. But to ask that and to note it is to quickly make observation of these thoughts as well. You can see them on the slide. Has the God of heaven said anything about the organization of that institution? For instance, isn't it true that God has had things to say about the organization of the family? The husband is the head. And we appreciate that that was in the infinite wisdom of God. With regard to the church, does the Bible make any statements about its organizational structure? If so, what might those be? I might begin by saying that you and I are well aware, it's certainly no secret, that throughout, oh, the last 500 years especially, there has been much that has been said about the organization in which it has been left to man. This morning, I would simply invite us with an open heart and mind to allow the Scriptures to do the talking and allow us to appreciate in our own understanding the nature of what God has so clearly set forth. You may notice about the bottom of that slide. May I be quick to say that if the God of heaven has stated concerning the organization of the church, then that is His will and it is the best way in which it is to be done, and the only way, approvedly, it can in fact be done. With all that said, let's turn to our next slide and highlight that not only has God said concerning this, He has spoken a great deal about it. So let's take a few moments... And in, in fact, in this rather brief lesson today, make note of, you see, what we can say about God's inspired truth concerning the institution of the church and how it's to be organized. It begins with elders. It begins with elders. Now on this slide, as we step through a few features about elders, may we start at Acts 20 verse 28. Paul, as he spoke to the elders of the church at Ephesus, to them he said, Take heed to yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. You may note it twice in that verse. Paul, in fact, pointed out to them, You have been made overseers. We understand the word oversee, of course, relates to oversight. Those who have a right to exhibit rule or jurisdiction, those who exhibit an authority concerning that over which they're ruling. Now, Paul in that passage directly told these gentlemen, these men, that they had oversight. However, that's just one passage among others that helps us understand the character of that oversight and what kind of oversight it is. So, the next thought would be this, these gentlemen, these men that would then serve as the elders of a local congregation, they are not arbitrarily placed in office. It is not you look out amongst you, find a couple of men that would be willing to do it. There are qualifications that God has mandated concerning which they must meet these. And so, if you'd like to pencil that consideration into your Bible, they're listed in two places. In 1st Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1 and thus we have the listings of these things which a man must in fact satisfy in order that he might be an elder may I again say it's not just a matter of finding someone willing to do it one with care and with, in fact fair consideration looks does this gentleman meet these qualifications can we not begin to see if God has listed qualifications for this office, is it not then a significant thing to notice He considers it important? Because after all, they are going to exhibit rule over the local congregation, which is the body of Christ. It might well be noted concerning that. In many ways, it will begin with an observation in First Peter now, since we didn't read the fullness of those qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, I'll merely mention that's the place to find them. Let's go to 1 Peter 5 and take just a moment and read a handful of verses in which some things are said about the kind of rule that these men are to exhibit. Again, 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's start in verse number 1. Peter makes a rather interesting statement about himself, among other things. And then he has this interesting combination of matters to share, and it goes like this, "...the elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder." Now we take note, Peter was an elder. He was also a preacher. So sometimes it's asked, "...can a man lawfully, according to the Word of God, be both an elder and a preacher of the same congregation?" Apparently the answer is yes, because Peter was. And he goes on to say, "...and a witness of the sufferings of Christ..." And also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. So, Peter next makes observation about the consideration of the basis upon which he said these things. I was a witness of the Lord, and furthermore, a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. So, he was a Christian, and with that in mind, he now made this statement Feed the flock of God which is among you. So, notice, he addressed elders. And to them He said, by way of commandment, notice He did not phrase it as an option. The command is, you feed the flock of God which is among you. So note, it has to be the flock among them. No man has the authority from heaven to serve as an elder over a different congregation than the one off which he's a part. Now you and I know that some denominational groups have taken this to a great extreme where maybe one man or group of men rule over a whole district of churches. That's as unscriptural as it can be. You might notice here, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight. One more time, that interesting word is used. Take oversight. And then it's qualified like this, not by constraint. So a gentleman shouldn't serve as an elder just because he thinks he has to just because he feels it incumbent that there's nobody else to do it. But it says, but willingly. You love the souls of these people. You love the thing that, which is the church. You love the matter of what in fact is the proper way of doing it. And so you do it willingly, never for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Then it says, neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock." So one of the key elements that God expects of a gentleman serving as an elder is his life should be reflective of the truth for which he stands. It should be reflective of the earnestness with which he strives to carry out these efforts. His personal life should be a reflection, you see, of the truth of which he's attempting to insist in the lives of others. Then he says, "...and when the chief shepherd shall appear," which is, of course, a reference to Christ ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So as you can see on this slide, we've now encountered a couple of verses that highlight it is the will of God that there be these men. And might we pause to say they have to be men because among the qualifications they are the husband of one wife and a woman can't be a husband. Now we appreciate that in as much as that's true on that particular slide, as they rule in this way, They, of course, are bound by the Word of God. Let's make sure we understand this. No elder anywhere has the right to assert, declare, or insist what is not consistent with the Word of God. It might well be stated like this. In matters of doctrine, elders don't really have any any jurisdiction beyond what the Bible says because the Lord has revealed the doctrine So the plan of salvation, an elder can't change that. What's required to please God in terms of a way of life, an elder can't change that. The issues connected to the specifics of worship, an elder can't change that. Because you see, all of that has been mandated from heaven. It is revealed in the Word of God. And aren't we reminded in Titus 1 verse 9, an elder has to hold fast the Word of God. He must not step beyond that but that does lead us to note issues of judgment. We know that in the oversight of a group of people, there will be lots of occasions in which judgment is called for. So what time are we to meet on Sunday? We choose 9.30 for Bible study. Someone else might choose 9 o'clock. Someone else might choose 10 o'clock. Someone else 10.15. Someone else might choose 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Point is, they're all the first day of the week, but an eldership, in conjunction with what is in their best interest of judgment for that group, they could make a selection such as that. Or if an eldership chose, in the interest of encouraging a consideration of appropriate worship, where hearts and minds were attuned to the proper things of God, they might well choose a dress code. They would have the right to do that. If they choose for us to meet on Wednesday as an added opportunity for spiritual development and faith-growing matters, they have the right to do it. If they choose to endorse a gospel meeting or some other lectureship, they could do that and we'd be obligated with all the earnestness within us to try to follow that which is because we're told to obey them. Hebrews 13:17 says, Obey them. It's not our right, you see, to just arbitrarily question what they've asserted, even in matters of judgment. We're commanded to obey them. You might note one last thing on that slide. As we've tried to at least think a little bit about the elders, might we pause long enough to say, in the infinite wisdom of God, it has been His will to insist this is the way He wants it done. Now we might pause and ask, would it then be right for some congregation to say, we'd rather not have elders? Maybe you know of congregations who, maybe over the course of time, they haven't had any for a while, and maybe they've reached the point, well, we would just really soon not have any. We like the way it's been going for a while, and so even though we have men that might be qualified, we're not interested in appointing them. That's wrong. God says this is the way it's His will for it to be done. Now, if there's no men qualified, that's a different matter. But for a congregation to deliberately choose not to do it God's way, they have a problem in their mindset. God says this is the best way. The church, you see, in Ephesians 5.27, has no blemishes or spots or any such thing. This is the way that the God God of heaven has determined is the best way for it to be done. May we be thankful for godly elders. Men who will safeguard the flock, who will stand against error when it appears, and who will strive to encourage faithful and godly lives amongst all of us, sometimes calling questions upon you and me when they observe things not consistent with truth, and when they observe things that would not work to our benefit on the day of judgment. Shouldn't we be thankful for men who love us enough to do that? Who would in fact say, I don't think you've dressed in a way that is upholding the Christian mantra of modesty. We ought to be thankful for a man, a group of men, who would love our soul enough that they would bring that to our attention now with an insistence on making some changes before, of course, it's too late. Elders have the oversight of a local congregation. As you and I have discussed elders to this point, a few more comments. That highlights that matter in obedience. I called your attention Hebrews 13, and since we referenced that verse a moment ago, there's an aspect of it that certainly should not be overlooked too quickly. Allow me to read it Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. Among the matters stated in that passage, in addition to this assertion of obedience, note the latter way that that's highlighted. There's coming a day, and we know it's the day of judgment, wherein these elders will give an accounting before God of the disposition of their oversight of the congregation over which they ruled. How did you carry out those duties of an elder Were you safeguarding the flock? Did you watch for their souls? Did you do so in such a way that you perhaps can now appreciate a host of people entering heaven in part because of your oversight and your leadership? That's bound to be such a delightful day when that happens. But you'll notice there's a part of this that's unprofitable. It says, as you obey and submit to them, it certainly would be such that they may do that with joy and not with grief not with grief. If you've ever given much thought to the life of an elder, it's a weighty responsibility and a weighty obligation. Because those gentlemen, of course, that do that properly understand that it's the body of Christ, and it's not an organization that belongs to them. They're just privileged by God to have a local oversight. And so as they do that, there's a great deal of thought and study and reflection and consideration that goes into their decisions. But you'll notice here, sometimes a lot of grief appears. In the best interest of the Word of God and that which it teaches, sometimes people won't do what they know they should. And they won't do what the Bible teaches they should. And although an eldership may bring that to their attention, they still... in rebellion, maybe even stubbornness and defensiveness, they won't submit to that which is in their eternal best interest. Don't you know an elder loses a lot of sleep when he's done that which the Bible would encourage him to do and yet this person or this group of people choose to be rebellious. Now when that happens, you can imagine how hard it is on an elder because in love, they've done what they know they must do, and yet the person isn't as responsive as you would hope. Notice it says, that's unprofitable. When an eldership brings before you and me in our life the teachings of the Word of God and we won't submit, it's going to be unprofitable for us on the Day of Judgment. When they're teaching us and encouraging us in the way of God and we won't submit to what they say, it's not going to go Well, Maybe it is in that light, why don't we turn our attention to note this. In Titus 1 verse 5, it is there said that it is a lacking circumstance when there's not elders. Titus, I want you to appoint elders in every city. Because if that's not the case, again, it's a lacking situation. I suppose we're all familiar with congregations that utilize business meetings because they don't have elders. And like we've said before, if there's no men qualified, that's understandable. But when there are men qualified, it should be a quick matter at once to try and put those men into office. Because if that's not the case, Paul said something's lacking. Something's wanting. Something's not as it ought to be. No business meeting ever is as effective, as effectual, and as productive as an eldership. So may we... Highly regard and be thankful for godly men who serve as elders. But what next might we notice? What about deacons? You may have noted in Philippians 1.1, Paul made reference to not only bishops, which are elders, but he also made note of deacons. The church in Philippi was organized in such a way that it had both elders and deacons. Now we've learned so far that an elder has primary responsibility concerning the spiritual welfare of us, guiding your soul and mine in the way it ought to go. Well, what do deacons do? On this slide, I've asked you to notice several things of note. First of all, let's begin with the word itself. First of all, there is an office that is recognized as the office of a deacon, Would you be turning with me to 1 Timothy 3 and notice the way in which that's phrased. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Could I call to your thought verse number 10, and let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon. So in the same way that there is this office, which is that of an elder, we also notice there is the office of a deacon. Now, one of the things that's caused no small amount of controversy or discussion, at least, has been the following: What does this word mean? Well, quite frankly, the word deacon merely means a servant, at least as far as the original thrust of that word. But what I'd like you to notice is, it's true all Christians are servants, but not all servants are Christian. Rather, all Christians are servants; not all servants are deacons. Now, that's easy to note, I think, because there's an office of a deacon. Who may then serve as a deacon? One more time, qualifications are given. Now, as you look at those qualifications, let me invite your attention to verse number 12. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. So, first of all, again, a lady cannot serve as a deacon. must be the husband of one wife, and then some additional qualifications are noted. As you look at those qualifications and give thought to the efforts and the work of a deacon, might we note this, the deacons have a different task, a different responsibility than the elders. We noted the elders, again, spiritual development, the interest in the spiritual welfare of the members of that congregation. But with deacons, it looks very different. Look at some of these examples of descriptions for example, in Acts chapter 6, we have a description where where something was physically amiss. There were some widows that were being neglected in the daily ministration. Well, what did the apostles do? They didn't try to take care of that shortfall themselves. They said, appoint you out men that we, will take, that we will assist and we will assert that they will take care of this business. And so they looked out seven men, and they appointed them, or they gave them the charge of taking care of those widows that were being neglected. Maybe among other things, we can note that appears to have been the first consideration of what we might call deacons, but so many later statements are also noted. They, you see, take care of physical things. They may take care of the building, the carpet, The other features, seeing care to the physical needs of people. When an eldership sees a physical need, they may then charge one or more of the deacons to take care of that particular matter so that they can continue to give themselves to the spiritual welfare of the people in the congregation. Now, these physical things could involve food or benevolence. It might involve any number of things that they might perceive as being needs physically, among the lives of those people. You'll notice about the middle of that slide. It does, of course, highlight in verses 12 and 13 that the deacons are those who have been proven. Now, pause with me long enough to note, the deacons also serve beneath those elders. And so again, it's not that a deacon is on an equal level with an elder in terms of authority. He's not. He serves beneath them. He submits to them just like the other members of the congregation. Perhaps it's in that light. You might appreciate an interesting way some of this is stated. In a working congregation, won't it be true that the elders will certainly serve a vital role, but the deacons will too, assisting to carry out the work in whatever number of ways that that might be carried out. But one of the things the Bible is very clear about, isn't it, is that these two are not equal. The deacon shouldn't try to serve as an elder, and the elder shouldn't, of course, consider himself a deacon. They each have their designated places of effort and work. As you and I have looked at these two, you'll notice that was the fullness of what was listed, of course, there in that text of Philippians 1, verse 1. I've only chosen to include one more simply because it has become such an issue in the denominational world. The New Testament also describes an evangelist. And you and I are well aware that many in our day and time have seen the person occupying this role as an elder. But that is not the case. In fact, they're rather widely different. As far as the evangelist... Now notice, each of us spread the gospel. Each of us live lives in which we try to influence for good. But the New Testament on so many occasions speaks about this gentleman who in fact is a proclaimer who occupies a place of speaking forth in a directed way in the public assemblies the nature of the gospel. And so... You read about Titus in Titus 2 verse 1, in which you're supposed to boldly declare that which is the truth. Well, in to give a congregation. We realize there might not be a settled evangelist. Many of us might well remember instances where maybe some gentleman would come one Sunday a month and that was on a rotating basis because that's the best that they had. I would submit, though, it is a thankful matter when there can be a located preacher, an evangelist who can be familiar with the circumstances of that congregation and who can help on a more continued basis be a part of setting forth in a continual way the truth of the gospel. You'll notice on this slide a few things are of note. First, the evangelist is mentioned in Ephesians 4.11. In other words, the particular statement of that office or of, that role is at least as highlighted. In addition to that, there is a very clear charge for this man. Second Timothy 4.2 puts it like this, preach the word. Now Paul would later describe himself by saying, I kept back nothing that was profitable for you. He preached it when it was convenient and when it was not. And today we too, are, of course, are appreciative when a man will do this. We'd far more rather hear about it now when there's something we could do about it than to show up in the day of judgment and find out that we were in error and the guy was too cowardly to ever tell us about it. Well notice this evangelist as it's highlighted there is one that brings you to a few more quick observations. There is a work of the ministry. Second Timothy four verse five makes reference to it. There is a work of the ministry. In other words, there should be planning involved, maybe lessons or thoughts of lessons or series of lessons that may take maybe weeks or months into the future, a planning involved so that there's a steady diet covering all that would be appropriate so that no subject is on particular left out too often. Again, that's something to consider. And to ensure that, again, for the general knowledge and the benefit of the congregation, that would in fact take place. That work of the ministry allows me to also mention it this way. You might ask, are there qualifications for this office, as there have been for the other two? I simply would ask you to notice, far less is said about that. We do know it must be a man because of what again is said in First Timothy 2.11. But beyond that, could I say it seems the most extensive listing is in First Corinthians 9 There we read this. Has to be a man that will preach the gospel fully. That is to say, not only does his life reflect it, but he preaches it with fullness. Not particularly leaving out certain subjects just because it might offend somebody. Not particularly leaving out certain things simply because it might be distasteful, but rather preaching the whole counsel of the God of heaven And I know that you and I have been blessed for all of our lives with gentlemen in this particular community and area who have been sound and solid preachers and proclaimers of the faith. I know we're thankful for those people. You'll note about the bottom of that slide, there is an element of authority that goes with the preacher, the evangelist, certainly not above the elder. But that authority in this case connects directly to what he preaches. It does not rest per se with him. We know that because of Titus 2 verse 1. Preach with all authority. So notice it was what the thing was preached had the authority. Titus was merely blessed to proclaim it. And today, a sound preacher will still feel the same. One last thing on that slide. As the preacher then delivers the messages, the evangelist doing these things, He will do so, of course, in love, because He's commanded to preach the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. It must be the truth without doubt. But the motivational matter will be, again, in conjunction with the benefit for the souls of the congregation, the appreciation of what's in their eternal best interest. The perfecting of the saints will be a natural outcome. I say it because that's the way Paul put it in Ephesians 4, verses 12 to 16. Trying to increase the faith, to build up the faith of the members so that their faith never rests on men, 1 Corinthians 2, 5, but that it rests on the Word of God, 1 Corinthians 2, 3. As you and I close that slide, we have looked then at these particulars, but might be be quick to say, that there are certainly some additional roles that are occupied in a congregation. There are those who teach, and the teachers are mentioned also, as we saw in Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. We should be thankful for those that teach our youngsters. We should be thankful for, in fact, the kind of preparation that they make and the work that they do in bringing about the quality instruction of every class that takes place. The lesson today has just been a gentle reminder of some of the basic matters of God's specifics concerning the organization of the church. These are what the Bible has said, and man isn't left to tamper with it. Some people think that they might know more than God on certain occasions, but that's never the case. We then are thankful for men who serve as elders, and do so according to the pattern in the New Testament. And we're thankful for men who serve as a godly deacon, having been proved, and assist in carrying out those necessary works which benefit the body in so many great ways. We're thankful for those who preach the gospel in earnest as love and truth because it's a blessing for all of us who listen that we, in fact, might know the Word of God and that we, too, might be drawn closer to it. Today, as we're thankful for these gentlemen, thankful for the work that they do, thankful for the kind of influence that they exert certainly above all i suppose we're thankful for god's plan to set it forth this way he knows what's best he always has and he always will it might be that today someone in this assembly upon reflection of your life you've realized that things are not as they ought to be and it's not because that's anyone's opinion It's because you have looked into the mirror of the Word of God and seen that the reflection does not look good. That what the Bible teaches does not describe the kind of life you're living. Don't you realize in love Jesus hang on on a cross for you? You can come back to your first love today. If we could be of some help to you today, we simply want you to know with loving arms we'd like to do it that demands that you make confession and repentance of those things that separate you as a wayward child of God from the Lord. Today, if you would simply let that be known, we'd be happy to assist and to encourage and to pray for you. May I say, though, if you've never become a Christian, what better day would there be than this? The 7th of November, 2021, the day that your name is put into the book of life. And if you'll live faithfully till death, it'll it'll always stay there. And you can go home to glory one day. If you have never become a Christian, let today be the day. Repent of your sins. Would you, upon your belief in the Lord, that what He did and said was right, you then act to make a change in life. You confess His matchless name as the Son of God, and then you're buried in water. Call it baptism for the remission of your sins. Oh, what a day it'd be. A day of renewal, renewal. A day of beginning again. A day of getting it right. Today, if we could help in some way concerning that matter, we would rejoice with you. We're about to stand and sing this song of encouragement. If one or more would wish to come, we invite you to do that now. while together we stand and sing.